Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. It's a special episode day! Today we are reading not from the narrative lectionary, but from the Jewish lectionary a section from the book of Exodus called Mishpatim, read in synagogues around the world on January 29th this year. And today we are joined by Laura Kahn, the board chair of an organization called Jewish Interest-Free Loans of Atlanta, which works to enact one specific teaching from Mishpatim. We'll read a small section of Exodus 22 together and then talk with her about what it looks like on the ground in terms of values and ideals, and also in terms of practicalities to walk this walk. Thanks for being with us. Hello, Bobby. Hey, Amy. How are you this week? I'm great. I'm so excited about today's episode. It's a special episode. Yeah. Who doesn't love a special episode? And so we are actually not alone here. It is not just me and Bobby sitting in a Zoom room. Um, we are joined today by Laura Kahn. Want to say hello, Laura? Hey, Amy. Hey, Bobby. Hey, everybody. Laura is here in her role as the board chair of an organization here in Atlanta called the Jewish Interest-Free Loans of Atlanta, which we're going to get a chance to hear some more about in just a little bit. But I thought first I would uh, offer some introduction to the lectionary that we are looking at today, which is not the narrative lectionary. <laughs> no, it is not. Oh, no, it's not. I'm especially excited to be reading with you this week because we're following the Jewish lectionary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let me explain for our listeners who might not know a little bit about how Jewish readings work week to week um, in synagogue communities. So the Torah, a.k.a. the Pentateuch, is divided into weekly portions. And we go from Genesis to Deuteronomy every year, and we move incrementally through the five books. So, you know, I, Bobby and I have joked before that, um, you know, we might be out of those first five books within maybe four weeks of, <laughs> of the narrative lectionary, and we spend our whole year yeah. in those books. And so so we get into some of the details that we're not able to cover if we're covering more ground as we do in the narrative lectionary. Each of those weekly portions in the Jewish community is called the Parsha, the weekly Parsha. Some communities read the entire Parsha every week, which is usually roughly three chapters. Some read a section of the Parsha, a third of it. But in any case, over the course of the year, we go from Genesis to Deuteronomy and then right back to the beginning of Genesis. So here in January, we are looking at the text that will be the weekly Parsha for January 29th, which is still in the book of Exodus. The Parsha is called Mishpatim. All the, the Parshas are named for the first sort of distinctive word in the Parsha. So you wouldn't have a Parsha called like, and, or these, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because there yeah. are too many of those. But this Parsha is called Mishpatim, which you could translate to rules or laws or judgments or or something like that. It comes from the root word meaning to judge. And the Parsha has a very wide array of rules, some of which are obviously connected to each other and some of which it's a little hard to discern what the connection might be. Some of them appeal easily to our modern sense of justice, some of which are really ritually oriented, and some of which you'd probably be very surprised to find mm -hmm. in the biblical text. But today we are focusing on just seven verses from that that is focused in particular on economic justice. Bob, you talk a lot about economic justice. I do talk a lot about economic justice. It's true. <laughs> it's true. But usually when we talk about it, it is, uh, it, I mean, it's coming at it through the text that we're reading together, which yeah. is more the prophetic 
you know, we've talked about it through Amos. We've talked about it through Isaiah. Yeah, I feel like I'm forever saying both in the prophetic text of the Hebrew scripture and also a lot in the New Testament, like, hey, the the community that's being envisioned here is the community of the Torah, right? It's the community of Deuteronomy. It's the community of Mishpatim. But we never actually read those texts. And so there's kind of this, you know, gesture toward a thing that we have never actually vocalized probably on the podcast in, in any with any depth. And so I'm super excited to be reading this with with y'all because this gives us a chance to really, I mean, it's a small little section, but it gives us a chance to really dig in instead of this sort of broad gesture to like the kingdom of God, right? It's here are, this is what it looks like on a practical level, how you live your life, uh, how you relate to your money and your neighbor that, you know, it's sort of informing all this whole other conversation, but I'm excited to kind of dig into the, the more specific details of, of how it works. Yeah. So, so I'm excited about that just period. End of story, I'd be excited about that. Yeah. But today, having Laura with us offers this sort of other level of opportunity because the organization for which Laura is the board chair works very specifically to bring about these concrete teachings yeah. in the world. Like, to what would this look like to enact this yeah. teaching. And so we're going to dive into some of the text in just a minute. But Laura, I would love to just hear from you a little bit about JIFLA is Jewish Interest-Free Loans of Atlanta, JIFLA, about your mission and your work in the world. Great. Thanks so much. Yeah. So, you know, um, JIFLA is the Jewish Interest-Free Loan of Atlanta, as you said, but we are part of actually an international federation of interest-free loans. And not every interest-free loan fund belongs to it, but just to give you a context, there are about 25 in um, different U.S. cities. Um, And also part of the international federation is four up in Canada, um, Toronto, Montreal, Winnipeg, Alberta. So just, you know, not necessarily play. It's not New York, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, uh, Jerusalem, Melbourne, Australia. So you can see what a kind of fundamental ingrained principle this concept of interest-free lending is. And we started up in Atlanta about 11, 12 years ago. There are some interest-free loan funds in, in the United States, in New York, San Francisco, LA, that were started in the late 1800s. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so they've been around for a long, long time. Um, have millions of dollars in funds. Um, like I said, we were a relatively late entrant as, as, as a formal institution in Atlanta. Although there's been a lot of informal um, interest-free lending that that goes on in any case for many, many years in Atlanta. That you know was just kind of happening through synagogues and individuals and other and other funds. So I can tell you a little bit about how we function in our mission. And so we, we state our mission as promoting financial stability and allowing Atlanta Jews to live their best lives um, is kind of the core mission. And um, we do this by making interest-free loans of up to $10,000 each. Um, we are the only organization in Georgia doing this. And the kind of the cool thing about interest-free lending is that the money is recycled indefinitely. So um, all of our money comes from contributions by individuals that we you know, fundraise. And that's one of our big pitches. The really cool thing is we've got over like a 95% repayment rate. So it's kind of like, I think a lot of people are, are um, very familiar with micro lending, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Really hot thing now for a couple of decades. And in a way, you can think of this as, um, you know, interest-free micro lending is, is we put money out there to people who need it, and then they repay us, and then we put the money back out there again. And so um, we, uh, some people have very essential needs. They need to pay their mortgage. They need to pay their rent. They need to buy food. So that's kind of the most need-based, but then there's people, I can tell you so many different uses, medical expenses, um, people who need basic renovations to their house or their HVAC Mm -hmm. goes out. And the way I always explain it to people is there's a lot of folks out there who don't have $5,000 to cover an emergency. And I know you guys are familiar with these statistics, right? Remember a couple of years ago, all these statistics came out about, I think it was over 40% of Americans could not meet a $1,000 unexpected need. Mm-hmm. 
So there's a lot of folks who, if your HVAC goes out and you need $3,000 or your car breaks down and you need that car to get to work, you don't have $3,000 or $5,000 whatever to fix your car, but you do have income and you do have the ability to pay back $75 or $100 or $150 a month over a few years. And that's the niche that we that we attempt to fill in the community so that people, um, and again, we talked about promoting financial stability so that people don't get buried by putting it on their credit card. And then you never, ever pay that off, right? You're paying it at 22% interest and all you do is build up mm-hmm, debt and, mm-hmm. and, and, and go underwater. And so that's, again, that's, that's what we try to do is help people live their best lives by, and also again, things like um, repairing a car, it helps people yeah. stay employed. It yes. helps you. It prevents you from going down that financial slope, uh-huh. becoming homeless, or not being able to hold your job because you don't have a car, or whatever. That you know keeps keeps the community healthy. I love that, and you know, uh-huh. it, and I feel like we can just say that is an outstanding and important mission. Period. The end. <laughs> yeah. Like on its own yeah. merit, and. The reason we have you here with us today on Bible Worm is that that core idea of the the importance of having access to interest-free loans or making those available within one's community is is just right there. (laughs) It's right there in this Torah portion, in this Parsha and Mishpatim. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time. We're we're just reading a tiny little snippet of the Parsha, but just to pull out some of some of this, the, the broad ideas and the specific teachings mm-hmm. that, um, that inform your mission. Awesome. It's, it's exciting. Yeah, yeah. So the text we are reading, if you are looking at a Jewish translation, is Exodus chapter 22, verses 20 through 26. The NRSV, and I think some other Christian translations too, Bobby, you said they're yeah, I think the versification verse. is from the Septuagint, maybe, the Greek mm-hmm. translation. And so in, in the NRSV and other Christ, Christian, typically Christian Bibles, it would be chapter 22, verses 21 through 27. So I am picking up in chapter 22, verse 20 in the NJPS. You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not ill-treat any widow or orphan. If you do mistreat them, I will heed their outcry as soon as they cry out to me, and my anger shall blaze forth, and I will put you to the sword, and your own wives shall become widows, and your children orphans. So this is not specifically the verses that, you know, that pertain to interest-free lending, but I just, I don't know, I feel like there are some important general teachings here that kind of inform, um, I don't know. Yeah, that's really important context for sort of like why why do we care about what we're getting ready to talk about? Well, it's it's because of it's because of this. Right. So, let me ask you first. In that first verse, you will you shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him mm-hmm. for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Can you like draw out a little bit that because in the middle, the for, like what yeah. is the relationship between those two? clauses in your mind. Yeah, that's such an interesting observation and such a great place to start. You know, that word that's being translated stranger in the NJPS is, in Hebrew, is ger, which means sort of a resident alien. It's not somebody far away from you, but somebody who is from far away who is living among you. So resident alien is really kind of how we would say that even just colloquially. And so this is about how do we treat people who are not from our ethnic or religious group or from our citizenship in, in the modern world who live with us. And I, I love what you're saying there about because you used to be that person and having this memory of when we, and you know, the Israelites for a time were treated well in Egypt. And mm-hmm. then for a time they were enslaved in Egypt. Mm-hmm. And so they kind of have both of those memories. But the way that I tend to read this is you you have experienced what it is like to be wronged by people among whom you live. And we don't do that, right? This, this is not the way the people of God are going to conduct ourselves. So you've experienced it, but instead of, you know, taking that out on someone else, 
you need to orient yourself so that you create a world in which that doesn't happen anymore. And I think yeah. that's such a lovely way of starting that. And, you know, not too far down the line, you get to people who don't remember having been enslaved mm-hmm. in Egypt, you know, within a couple of generations. And so this is a memory that you have that you yourself have not experienced, but you you know what it's like because it's in sort of the the memory of the people. Mm-hmm. And so even though you yourself have not necessarily experienced being a stranger, your people know what that's like. And so you, it's incumbent upon you to live out of the experience of the past in order to create a better present and future. I was going to say, it's just a statement of empathy. Of, yeah. Of, and, and realizing like in, the, in America, we all know in, that all of us were gears at some point, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and everybody's family came over at some point. I don't know. I, I always think we we went and lived in Israel twice just for like, you know, six to 10 months each time. And my Hebrew is terrible. And um, I, I, every, each time I came back, cause you know, here I'm living in America, I'm highly educated, blah, blah, blah. And um, each time I, I came back, I had such incredible empathy for immigrants who struggled with the language. Cause when I was there in Israel, I always felt dumb. Right. I couldn't yeah. communicate. I knew I was a smart person, but I couldn't communicate. And mm-hmm. I look at people now and I think that's how they feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the feeling of empathy, which is empathized, which is um, emphasized here is just so important. Yeah. I was remembering when I read this text this time around a conversation you and I had, Bobby, back when we were reading Genesis, when um, God is talking to Abraham. He might even have been Avram at that point. It's pretty early on. And um, God tells Abraham that there is going to be this period of time that his aunt, his descendants will be enslaved or oppressed for, you know, I don't remember how much detail is given, but it, it's clear that there's going to be a long period of bad stuff. And I remember asking you, like, why would you tell someone that? Like, why would God tell Abraham that now? And so we, you know, sort of, tossed that around for a while. And I don't know, it just came to my head reading this text, I think, maybe working with so many bar and bat mitzvah students who ask, like, why would that be part of the plan from the beginning? Mm. Why would God's plan involve, then your people will suffer for 400 years. And, you know, I'm not here to say, like, oh, it's all for the good. It was no big deal. Everyone needs to suffer. Like, I'm not I don't need to get into all that. It sort of is what it is, and the story is what it is. But but I think this is just such a, a clear reminder of how important that history of suffering is in, you know, just as Laura said, in the development of empathy and, you know, being able to be pulled right back into that root memory of, no, you know, you know in your kishkis, you know in your guts what it feels like. And sometimes that is more um, compelling than an abstract idea of like, you shouldn't oppress them because you shouldn't oppress them. Don't be a jerk. Yeah. Like that's compelling sometimes. But when you really know in your gut what it feels like, it's um, it's different. Yeah. And I myself don't read that um, Genesis text as necessarily saying it was God's intention that the people should be enslaved in Egypt, but this is going to happen. This this is the way yeah. the world works. Yeah, this is yeah. what people do yeah. to each other. And so you shouldn't think that the promises of God are bankrupt when this happens to you. And then when you're on the other side of this thing, the world works this way, but you don't need to work this way, right? You need to figure out how to do it differently. Mm. And so, yeah, so I do think there is something important about going through things. And also, you know, I think it is not God's intention that we ought to go through things so that we can be more empathetic, but that we ought to be able to be empathetic based on the experiences that other people have had that they, that they share with us and, and the memories that come to us that we ourselves didn't necessarily experience. That's really helpful. Thank you. Okay, but then the text moves us from this shared memory to the widow and the orphan. Yeah. Will you bridge us from from the not oppressing the stranger to the widow and the orphan? I mean, y'all might have some more thoughtful ideas about this. 
To me, these are people who are sort of systemically disadvantaged in the structures of Israelite society the way it was conceived at the time. So if you are unattached from a patriarch, then you're vulnerable in society. Mm -hmm. And here, so the stranger, the resident alien, is detached from the whole sort of social network. The widow and the orphan, likewise, if, if they don't have a family that's looking out for them, they sort of have the, they run the risk of falling in between the cracks. And so this instruction, as, as I read it anyway, is you need to be looking out for the people who are most vulnerable among you. In this case, stranger, widow, orphan. But I think you could probably translate that, you know, into modern times in other ways. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. look around and see who are the people in danger of falling through the cracks of the social fabric. And those are the people who you, re- who you really need to look out for. Mm-hmm. What would y'all say about that? I mean, I think I was, I was thinking pretty similarly in terms of the, the bridge between those things. Like it sort of starts you in this shared root experience of the, the immediate audience of this text and then bridges you out one step. Like maybe, yeah. okay, so you've been vulnerable by being the gear. Maybe you haven't been a widow or, or an orphan, oh, but you've got to yeah. see... You've got to see that connection. Yeah. So it's not simply the things that you yourself or your people have experienced, but the ability to empathize with others who are in similar situations that are not your experience. I, I love that, Amy. I think that's exactly right. Yeah, that's great. I think what, <laughs> I don't know if I can say it entertains me, but but it entertains me. There's just such a like hard stop here. God's like, nobody, nope, nope. You are not, <laughs> you are yeah. not going to do that. Yeah. It reminds me of, um, <laughs> it reminds me of, <laughs> this is a very strange story to tell, but again, this is how my mind works. When my son was very little and was learning various ways he could try to make me do his bidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he decided some evening to just like, I don't know, he was two or three years old or something like that. He just pulled down his pants and peed against the wall in the living room <laughs> to like express me? his <laughs> displeasure at something. Yeah. And I can be a flexible and probably overly compassionate parent sometimes, mm-hmm. but I was like, oh, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> like <laughs> even I know there was, was a hard a stop right there. The like yeah. it's bedtime now. It's 530. Yeah. Well, clearly you can't control yourself. So you're going to bed. Yeah. But that's what I see here is God like, oh, oh, no. Like, yeah. <laughs> this, I love that. No, yeah. I will put you to the sword, friend. Yeah. That will be the end of that. Now, that last verse, uh, I will kill you with the sword and your wives will be widows and your children will be orphans. Like, to me, that is so interesting. I mean, first of all, like, I don't think God probably, like, has a sword. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I think yeah. this is suggesting that political forces will be motivated that will uh, take vengeance on you. So so I read this as, look, if you establish an unjust society, injustice is going to come back to get you. And, Mm. you know, we can see that in the framework of God's plan for things, but I don't see it as like God's going to swoop in on a, you know, a divine chariot with a divine sword. But like, this is the way it's going to play out in the mundane sphere, which has a divine sphere behind it. So uh, that seems right to me. If if you mistreat people, then you know you you sh- you who are above mistreatment, right? You who are taken yeah. care of by the social fabric should not think that this is inevitable, uh, that it can never happen to you, because it absolutely can happen to you. And if you don't look out for people, then then it, then it's going to come back to get you. I think that I is that. really important. The yeah. French Revolution. The French Revolution. If you you know let them eat cake, and the people will rise up against you. Yeah, yeah like that's right. The other thing I love in there is uh, where, in God's voice, uh, when they cry out to me, I will surely heed their cry, suggests to me that God has sort of a particular inclination to listen to the voices of the people who are oppressed or the people who are being mistreated in a society. Not that God doesn't also listen to other people, but there's like a, like that's the bat phone, right? Like the ear is always attuned. Uh, to those things. And you, you can bet that God will respond when that happens. It's, yeah. it's like God is listening to the people that society ignores. Yes. Yeah. And I really do get a sense that if you are, if you have, if you are given a certain amount of power by society or a certain amount of comfort by society, 
you have an obligation to use it in a certain way. And yeah. And th- there will be consequences. Like this, again, like the first part, this is not just everyone should be nice. Right. You know, there's there is a clear right and wrong and a clear sense that justice will be exacted. Yeah. And um, when I was reading this, I thought a lot about the importance of the church in African-American society mm. and how, you know, when a people has been a- oppressed over a long period of time, um, how central the church has been to, you know, um, over the last, you know, three, 400 years to, to giving um, African-Americans a sense of hope and a sense of connection. And, and I, I thought about this when reading this verse, um, how the oppressed, you know, turn to mm-hmm. God for hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Should we move into the specifics? Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. So I'm picking up then in 24 in the NJPS. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, do not act toward them as a creditor. Exact no interest from them. If you take your neighbor's garment and pledge, you must return it to him before the sun sets. It is his only clothing, the sole covering for his skin. In what else shall he sleep? Therefore, if he cries out to me, I will pay heed, for I am compassionate. Where should we start with this one? My, this, my starting place is weird, so maybe you have a better starting place. <laughs> no, I, I want to hear your weird start. Once you've said that, like, well, there's nothing else we can do. We I have to know. Start in your weird well, starting place. okay. So, uh, okay, my starting place is, is looking at that first verse, if you lend money to my people. Mm. If is a translation of im in mm-hmm. Hebrew that is usually translated as if, but is sometimes translated as when. The translation we're looking at says when, by the way. Rashi here says it's when. Rashi is a is a Jewish interpreter who sometimes flies a little fast and loose with the biblical text. Yeah. But it's very interesting. I think the reason I asked that question is, is maybe something we actually ultimately want to put on the shelf for now because I think there are teachings whether or not we determine one way or the other. But whether there is an assumption in this text that society includes includes loaning. Someone, someone among your people is going to need to borrow money, and you are going to make a loan at some point. Mm-hmm. Versus saying if, which is really just sounds like you can decide to opt into this or not. Yeah. Like it's really totally up to you. I, I like when better just because— you know, the the whole concept of lending money is fundamental to a function of functioning economy and a functioning society. There's always going to be somebody who has a little more and somebody who has a little less. I think the concept of when is a recognition of the fact that, kind of like you were saying, saying Amy, um, it's inevitable that somebody's going to need something. And whether you're lending money or in earlier societies, whether you were lending somebody three cups of wheat you know, that they had to pay you back on your harvest when they had their harvest or whatever, at some point there's going to be an exchange of money or goods or something. And it's important that the Torah sets out what are the terms of that exchange. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's really, I, I like when better too. And, and for that reason, um, <laughs> yeah, I think I would probably, I'm not sure my he. Mm, <laughs> I'm not entirely convinced it can mean win, but like, who am I to quibble with Rashi? <laughs> right. Uh, so I think I'll take a, I think I'll step I mean, back and say, Rashi yes, let's, let's do Rashi says there are only way. two other times in the Torah when he would advocate for E meaning when. So yeah. like, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But I, but I really like thinking about it theologically. I think it's really rich to think about it as when. Yeah. No, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think y'all have, have said it well. It, you know, if you say if, then you think, well, okay, well, I don't want to, well, I don't want to give won't. money yeah. without interest, so I'm just not going to do it. And then I yeah. pass the law. When it's when, then you think, okay, well, that's expected that I should, and and here's how it's going to work. I, I think that's, I think that's better for sure. Yeah. This idea of exacting no interest. Mm-hmm. I mean, on the one hand, it seems pretty straightforward, but it's also pretty countercultural and mm-hmm. like modern American life. Yeah, it's curious what the incentive there is for the 
for the creditor, the person who's loaning the money. Mm. I mean, it seems to be suggesting that you, you ought to do it because you have resources and other people in the community don't have resources. And therefore you ought to freely make your resources available to those in need. Mm-hmm. I, I love that idea, but that, I mean, it is hugely impractical, I think, to expect that people might actually do that. Which I mean, you know, we're talking about an idealized society that en- enacts some certain kind of a covenantal relationships among people, and so ma- so maybe it's reasonable that it be idealized. Yeah, Bobby. What I'm reading there is I put the emphasis there on um, to my people, mm-hmm. um, and you know, um, later on in the book of Deuteronomy, there's some clarification where it says, um, "You shall." Um, not cause your brother to take interest. So it kind of expands on that concept, mm-hmm. but it says, but you may cause a Gentile to take interest. Yeah. So it kind of confirms what you are saying here, which is that within a limited group or, uh, um, or community or society, and, and, you know, the Israelites, of course, at this time were a very small group within mm-hmm. Society as the Jews continue to be today, you know, less than one percent of global population. So um, I think that's kind of the emphasis I would yeah. put there when I think about practicality. The yeah. practicality is, you know, within your community, don't do this. But you know, within the greater community, um, you can a Jew can borrow from a Gentile, a Jew can lend to a Gentile with interest, and um, and and that uh, supports that kind of economic imperative that you know, you need lending in a society. Yeah, that's really helpful. And that the, to my people, and then it's qualified by to the poor among you, which puts us back in that previous paragraph, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. resident alien, the widow and the orphan. And so, it, you know, I think one way of reading it is the, those in danger of, you know, those who cannot take care of themselves or who are in danger of falling through this, the fabric of the social network um, those are the people that you shouldn't take interest from. I'm, I'm interested in that sort of Gentile resident alien. Like mm-hmm. we've just said, don't do this to a resident alien, but then Deuteronomy is going to say, oh yeah, but you can, you can lend to a Gentile with interest. And I don't know whether you then think about people, like is there a difference between people who live, who are Gentiles who live among you, like part of your community versus those who are out there someplace? Mm-hmm. Or are Deuteronomy and Exodus doing something slightly different? I don't, I don't quite know how to square those two texts, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. When we started um, our Interest-Free Loan Society and we got a rabbinical advisor and we were asking about, um, because there are Jewish interest-free loans that make loans to non-Jews, interest-free loans to non-Jews. Hmm. And they tend to be some of the bigger ones, the ones with more resources, but not all. So it's, a philosoph- it's kind of a business and philosophical decision at the beginning to say, do we want to lend to non-Jews or, or not? Yeah. Um, and the one thing I always remember the rabbi saying is he said, it's a mitzvah to um, do an interest-free loan to a Jew, but it is certainly not a sin to do an interest-free loan to a non-Jew. In other words, mm. it's still a good thing. It's a good thing. Yeah. But, but you know, you have limited resources mm-hmm. and make a decision about your limited resources. That's really helpful. And in my mind, this Exodus text is imagining a world in which the Israelites or the Jews are the majority. So, you know, we're in Israel in the whatever period we're in, and you are the dominant culture, and then there's people living among you. And so how you transpose that into a world in which, as you're saying, Jews are very much a minority in most of the world. And, you know, so the responsibilities then, I think, shift around a little bit. Mm-hmm. In ancient times, Jews were never a predominant. I mean, maybe I, I agree with you, Bobby. I'm sure in the, in a we didn't have the mobility we have today, right? Yeah. So you could be whoever was living within ten square miles of you was really the community that you lived with because yeah. people weren't traveling far away. So yeah, yeah, that's that's a good point. Yeah. It's so interesting because I definitely at reading this text as a Jew, I definitely feel some tension around the idea that this is a teaching of how Jews should treat Jews yeah. and and that it doesn't extend to, to the non-Jewish community. And I think actually your question, Bobby, or the way that you framed your question in terms of like the practicality and covenantal relationship is really helpful to me because I do think, you know, whether 
whether to parse it. Like, I think there is some question of like, at the end of the day, who are your people? And if you yeah. say everyone is my people, yeah, that will raise some challenges. Like that will, in terms of, okay, give interest-free loans to everybody all the time is, is maybe impractical, not because people are, are inherently different from one another, but just because I don't, I, there, there, there's some tension between sort of universalism and having a sense of like your, your people, whatever you construe that to mean, whether it's, you know, whether it's the Jewish community or whether it's your synagogue community or whether it's your family or whether it's your church or, or whatnot. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's so helpful. And, you know, one of the things I was thinking as, as y'all were talking is, you know, with Christian ears, my people sounds different to me, mm-hmm. but I don't think in, in my ears, it's not just other Christians. It's sort of this, you know, I'm reading, Amy, you and I talked about in last year, we talked about in the Gospel of Luke, the parable of the Samaritan who is sometimes called good. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, but who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells that story in which is, it turns out that anybody mm-hmm. who is in need is your neighbor. And mm-hmm. so that story actually does, I think, open out to say the whole world is your neighbor, like everybody. Mm-hmm. And so anybody in need is your responsibility. And we talked back then about how that's huge and impossible. And how do you even start to think about that? So to me, this is a, I mean, this is an interesting question. And I don't, it, re, it seems like it reads a little differently in a Jewish context than a Christian context, maybe. But I mean, most Christians that I know just get overwhelmed by that concept <laughs> and don't, you know, like they take care of the people that, that they know, right? They, like we all, that's sort of our tendency is to take care of whatever we consider to be our community. And right. I, that's not a bad thing, right? If right. everybody was taking care of their community, then, and not damaging we'd other be people's off. communities, yeah. we'd be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Hi everyone, it's Bobby here from Bible Worm. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. Amy and I started Bible Worm a couple of years ago because we wanted to create a space where we could talk deeply about the Bible in ways that bring together our academic backgrounds in biblical studies and our deep engagement with communities and people of faith. We decided to make this resource free because we want everyone to have access to sound biblical scholarship that connects biblical faith to everyday life. We hope you're finding the podcast fits that need. That said, while the podcast is free, making it is not. Amy and I and the rest of Team Bibleworms spend a lot of time and energy studying, recording, and editing the podcast to make it freely available to the public. If you enjoyed the podcast, and if you find yourself in a position to support our work, we hope that you will consider becoming a Bible Worm supporter for as little as $4 per month. For a bit more, you can also get early access to episodes, weekly liturgies, video Bible studies, join a monthly discussion group, and more. We realize not everyone is in a position to support the podcast, but if you appreciate our work and want to support us, we hope you'll check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast for more details. Thanks so much for listening, and now back to this week's podcast. There's one last little bit of text that we read that I want to dive into before we just ask Laura some more questions about um, Jifla. And it is this, if you take your neighbor's garment in pledge. Yeah. What are you picturing? Like, what is the scenario here? I love this so much. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's so... The way that I read this is if I loan you money and, you know, what I'm going to take back is the guarantee of the loan is going to be a, a garment from you. And then I'm going to have to give it back to you every night. Like, I think what it, like the way that I read this is like, okay, you, I got your coat. And now when the sun sets, I'm going to come back and give it to you. I'm going to come back in the morning when the sun comes up and I'm going to get it back from you. And it's just so much work that it's not even, that it's not even worth it. And so like, <laughs> you wouldn't do it. But underneath that seems to me like a, a concern about the dignity and even a little bit the comfort of mm-hmm. the person. Like we don't want being in debt to rob you of something so basic as the clothes in which you're going to sleep. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the way that I kind of would extrapolate this is when we're involved in economic transactions with people, we should never be engaged in them in a way that robs people of their dignity or their capacity for sort of the basic comforts of life. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of love this image, but I, I think it uh, it plays out in all kinds of other, of other interesting ways. Yeah. How do you read that? I mean, really, like, similarly, and 
I just have this sense that like if you if you really need a loan, you'll agree to a lot of things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like this text to me is saying like, even if the other person agreed yeah. to something, that doesn't mean you can do it. I love like, that. Yeah. You might be able to say like, well, it's fair. Like we had an we you know we had a contract or whatever. And this text is saying no, no, like you you can't. You know, it gets mm-hmm. cold in the desert at night. Mm-hmm. You have to have something to wear. And so I, I, it feels to me like it's saying it's not just a question of, like, what's fair or what's agreed upon. Like, there are right. certain basic needs yeah. that you can't sign away. Like, you can't just let your, your mm-hmm. community members say they don't need it because they do need it. Yeah. I love that. It shows that sometimes people come into you in desperation and don't take advantage yes. of desperation. Yes. Yes. I mean, I'm thinking of some of the, Mm -hmm. you know, more egregious loaning policies where they'll they'll loan to someone who's in a truly desperate situation with such insane interest rates that nobody should agree to that ever. But if you're really in a desperate position, you know, what are you going to do? You might. Yeah. We've actually financed a couple of those loans, not a ton, but where people mm. were so desperate that they went to this like payday loan kind of place. Yeah. I always remember one guy came and he had borrowed like, you know, $3,000 because he had to get his car repaired. And he came to us and he said, I really need the loan by the end of the month so I can pay it off. And on this $3,000, he had already paid like $500 in fees and expenses and interest in a month. I mean, it's, 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 it's crazy. Mm. Yeah. Amy, there's just one other thing in this text that I think is worth drawing attention to is that that last word, at least in the NRSV, mm. where God says, I will listen because I, for I am compassionate. Yeah. And you know that you hear that, that echo of Exodus 34, 6 and 7 there when God passes in front of Moses and, and gives a sort of divine self-description. And, you know, we, we see images of God all kinds of ways, but that that adjective, uh, I am compassionate, sometimes that compassion works itself out as wielding the sword against the oppressor. As, I mean, it just did it like three sentences ago. Yeah. But ultimately, all of that is because God is compassionate toward the poor and the vulnerable. Uh, to me, that's that's one of the things I kind of hold in front of me always when I, when I think about what is God like. I love that. And I love that it's, again, not just saying, like, be nice. Like, there's a real fire about it. Like, there's an edge about it. There's a power. Mm -hmm. But the power comes from this, oh, I want to say, like, soft place. But I don't know if that's the right, I don't know if that's quite the right image. It's a little hard to put it in sort of human society terms. And the compassion works itself out in very specific and tangible ways instead of like, oh, I feel bad for people, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, like God has just given us this list of things like, okay, here's what it looks like practically to be compassionate. And so those are the things like, I don't care how you feel, but I care what yeah. you do. I, I think that is, is really important. Mm. It seems really ap- applicable to um, humans in our society. I mean, I think of it as social, God's social activism, right? <laughs> God's saying... Have compassion in a very practical way. Yes. Go out and help people. And it's this, you know, it's what you do like uh, when your church or synagogue works for immigrant resettlement. It's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's so practical today with, you know, Georgia has 700 Afghani um, mm-hmm. refugees being resettled right now. If you go out and buy pots and pans for them in their new apartment or a couch or a television set or whatever, to me, this is speaking directly to this. It's a, yeah. it's extremely practical. Yes. Yes. This is like the very specific, pract- one practical example of some of these ideas that we've talked about in Prophets, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, Laura, you, you are walking the walk. I mean, you are <laughs> doing exactly that, mm-hmm. not just like sitting and having feelings of compassion, um, but your organization is is figuring out how to how to really do the work um, on a day to day level. What um, I mean, you told us a little bit about the organization just at the beginning. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what's what's been most challenging or or most rewarding in this in the work that you do? 
You know, it's it's so interesting because we're all human and you think about compassion and um, we see so many different cases. And look, there are people that are such hardworking people, the vast majority, and then they get unemployed or something, or they're, they're living on the edge. And as we all know, when you're living on the edge, it's very easy to get pushed over the edge, right? Um, the, you know, sometimes you see people, and I'll just be very frank, they're, they're just managing their life poorly. They're not, they never seem to get ahead. They don't seem to make good decisions. Part of it is also being compassionate about those people, right? And 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 maybe you don't agree with every decision they've made in their life, which has helped them end up where they are today, but they still deserve to have a roof over their head and and to have you know food on their plate and take care of their family. Um, it's for me some of the things that have been really rewarding on a personal level, beside the obvious of. You're, you're helping people. You're helping them keep their head above water. For me, also, um, just seeing a very, and getting to know a very broad base of the Jewish community. I mean, like all of us, I, I live in my kind of community pod. And what this has done is it's, we work with the entire community from, um, from very Orthodox people to the completely unaffiliated and trying to reach out to the unaffiliated. And for those, you know, maybe not as um, familiar with, the Jewish communities are tends to be the big movements are like reform, conservative, orthodox. We work with all those synagogues, all those rabbis, all those schools, the, the, the Jewish day schools throughout the spectrum. Um, and it's been very personally rewarding to get out of my Jewish pod <laughs> and, and meet people um, throughout you know, the entire community and see the incredible work being done across affiliations. It really doesn't matter that all different parts of the community are doing really meaningful work in all different ways. So that's been kind of great. Um, you know, it's always funny. And I think a lot of nonprofits face this and it's very counterintuitive. One of the biggest challenges is always letting people know that your resource exists, right? I mean, there are so many resources out there and people in need just don't always know that it's there. So we spent, um, you know, we're finally now in our 12th year becoming a really full-fledged member of the Atlanta philanthropic community. And right now we have 125 loans outstanding. Um, our average loan is about $4,300. Um, we're getting a lot of referrals now because we're getting better known. But really, again, one of the biggest challenges was just helping the community know that this resource existed and getting referrals and helping people find us. Mm-hmm. I'm so curious about, I, I love what you're doing. And, you know, as Bible scholars, we talk in the abstract quite a lot <laughs> about like how people maybe ought to live or could live. But mm-hmm. when then people are like, well, how do you do that? We're like, ah, <laughs> you know, like, I don't, I don't know. Um, but here you are, uh, who have some like profound practical experience. And so I'm just interested if, if we have listeners who, who might be Jewish, might be Christian, might be unaffiliated, uh, might be from another tradition and they think, oh, this sounds like something I want to be involved in or something, maybe my, whatever, my church, my organization could think about doing something like this. H- how would you recommend somebody get started being either involved in this kind of work or, you know, carrying out this kind of work? You know, I I would say that it doesn't matter if you're a Jewish or or Christian organization, if you're really interested in having an interest-free loan association, I would recommend Googling and reaching out to the International Association of Jewish Free Loans, um, because they're not going to care what your affiliation is and they would be delighted. I'm sure to share information and and help anybody interested. I mean, the first thing, and I was a, I was an originating board member of this organization. So I have kind of seen it grow from the beginning. Um, You have to decide who you're going to reach out to. And this is a lot, what a lot of our discussion today has been about, right? I mean, I think that in order to be effective, you have to be targeted and you can always expand your targeting later. But at first, let's say, um, you know, start with your church. Start with just saying, hey, this is something maybe we as a community should have. And start within your own community because that will help you figure out your parameters. And then, again, you can always evolve from that. But start with a targeted group. Then you have to 
have some money, <laughs> and um, and then you have to develop your criteria. And you know, one of our criteria, one of, one of the big challenges again is the fact that you have to realize I am not a grant association, and it's a big difference. Mm-hmm. Every most organizations are used to giving out grants. You know, churches certainly have um, funds that help people. We have in the Jewish community, we tend to have their, what we call the rabbi's discretionary fund, where if people are in need, they go to the rabbi and the rabbi will have money. He can help people out. Part of what we've done is we go to the rabbis and we say, hey, you know what? Maybe don't use your discretionary fund. Maybe retain that for people who really don't have any ability to, to pay back. But if you see these kind of situations where the person is employed and they can pay back, Mm. um, send them to us. Yeah. So in the Jewish community, uh, giving uh, an interest-free loan is actually considered to be a higher level of giving um, than a grant because it allows the person getting the loan to have uh, more personal dignity because they know that they'll be repaying, that there's an obligation attached to it, and it's not charity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's one of the things, again, we try to communicate to the community, and again, back to challenges, <laughs> is um, a lot of people, they'll say, oh, I'm not, I'm not that desperate. I don't, I don't need to go to GIF Law, I'll figure it out. You know, well, putting it on your credit card at 22% interest is not figuring it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're trying to communicate, hey, if you would get, a student loan, if you would get a mortgage loan, um, or if you would put it on your credit card, don't be embarrassed. We're just another form of lending, and you're going to pay us back. And so by paying us back, you you, you meet your obligations, and it's, um, you know, don't, it shouldn't, it's not something anybody should be embarrassed about doing. But anyway, Bobby, so I need to go back to your question about how to set this thing up is... Um, set out your parameters. So in our case, we started out with $5,000 loans. We are now up to 10,000 because we have a bigger corpus of funds. So how big your loans can be is going to depend in part, right, on how many, how much funds you have to start with. If you're starting with $10,000, you're not going to give $5,000 loans because you're going to get So if you're starting with $10,000, maybe you give $1,000 loans, you know, or whatever. So you decide, how much am I going to give? What's the repayment terms? You we you do have to have criteria that people can pay the loan back. Otherwise, again, you're not a loan society, you're a grant. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that almost all interest-free loan societies have is a guarantor requirement. And this is pretty important. This is something we haven't talked about. And so all of the interest-free loan societies have they require at least some of the borrowers and most borrowers to bring a guarantor so that if they can't pay back, the guarantor can repay the loan. And usually it's not, again, the full amount of the loan. It might be, I'm paying back $100 a month. Um, I've hit a tough spot. I'm temporarily unemployed. And maybe the guarantor steps in and makes monthly payments until the person can come back in pay the loan. So that's a very important and pretty universal criteria that free loan funds have that I think is important, um, you know, an important part of it. It's so, uh, I don't know, I want to say it's, it's great. It's refreshing. It's, I just love hearing how these ideas like really land in the, in the real world of modern American life and finances. I love it. I love it. Mm-hmm. Another thing to mention that we do, um, and again, this is like for other people trying to reach out, is we we feel that our mission is to amplify other the mission of other organizations. So this isn't something that's intuitive at all, So which is why I'm pointing it out. There's a huge, again, within the Jewish community, just a huge philanthropic community, as I know there is within the Christian world. And so we haven't tried to reinvent the wheel. Part of what we do is we work with other organizations and we say, we can help you do what you do. So for example, there's something called the Jewish Fertility Foundation and they give out a limited number of grants for women who need IVF treatments. Mm. There's the Jewish uh, Family Services that provide psychological counseling or job counseling. There's the Jewish Home Life Group, which provides services to the elderly. So one of the things that we've done is to try to partner with all these other organizations and said, 
how can we help you fulfill your mission via interest-free lending? And so we work with the Jewish Home Life Group. They have um, a housing facility for the elderly. And so we will make loans to the elderly for hearing aids or for a computer so they can communicate with their kids who live out of town, or in one case, a refrigerator or all different things where they know that we exist. They refer loans to us um, that, that we can make to the elderly. For the Fertility Foundation, they come to us so that it helps their grants go further. They can give like a $10,000 grant, but a couple may still need another 15,000 for the IVF. We might do a $10,000 interest-free loan on top of their grant. So that's something that is pretty unique to JIFLA, but I think it's also really, really cool. Um, for Jewish uh, day camps or whatever, families wanna send their kids to a Jewish camp. And again, very reflective, I think, of the, the Christian community. A lot of people want to send their kids to camp. Maybe you don't have $3,000 to send your kids to camp, and you could pay it back at $100 a month over 30 months so your kids can go to camp. So we work with all the Jewish day camps. And that's that's one of the things that I think is really the most exciting about how we fulfill our mission. I love it. Okay, so I want to just name here the uncomfortable fact that there is a very sticky, widespread, long-standing anti-Semitic trope or anti-Semitic association that ties together Jews and banking and money and greed, like these for for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And so to be in a conversation that is specifically about Jews and money and lending, um, it's just impossible for my mind not to not to go there a little bit. I don't know. What can you tell us sort of about that about that trope? What do you think we should know about it? Do you feel it at all in the work that you do, Laura? Yeah, such such an interesting question, Amy. Um and, you know, when I first started looking at it, to be honest, I kind of bought into some of the myths, I think, and that I thought I, I was going to find, oh, well, Christians didn't lend money and they forced the Jews to lend money because, again, it, lending is somewhat of an economic imperative. And that was the basis for, you know, kind of the anti-Semitism. But it was pretty interesting, actually. And then what I found was, except for a pretty short period of time in like the uh, 13th century, the church didn't forbid lending. And there have been Jewish and Christian money lenders throughout history and Christians lending to Jews and Jews lending to Christians. And so that that in itself to me was interesting. So then what is the basis of the anti-Semitic trope, right? Um, which I agree with you is, is extremely pervasive over, over centuries. And I think, you know, so the basis for Jews lending was you know, in medieval times, but really, as you guys know, into the 19th century, uh, pretty recent history, Jews were not permitted to join guilds. Jews were physically and geographically limited into living in ghettos in most societies. So they weren't allowed to own land. Um, they weren't allowed to be in these skilled guilds. So they really didn't have a lot of ways to make a living. <laughs> so, um, you know, that they were allowed to make money was through money lending. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's something that, yeah, again, at first my mind kind of went to, well, they were kind of forced to do that. I, I, I don't necessarily, I don't really think that was at least as I understand it, the case, but it, it was an opportunity I and mean, it was an opportunity mm -hmm. to make a living. So where does this negativity come from? And I think maybe a couple of things. One is maybe they did it quite successfully. And the Jews were a much lower caste of society, right? And so my husband made a good point. He said, yeah, I think of it as a white man owing money to a black man in the 1930s Mississippi, right? I mean, think how that would feel. And so you're an upper caste of society, and there's another part of a group in society that's really looked down upon, and yet you're you're indebted to them. Mm -hmm. And so I think really the way I look at it is it made it, it evolved because 
of this sense of being indebted to this lower part of society and the, and the extreme discomfort with that mm-hmm. and the way that the Christian community or the broader community comforted themselves was making, creating this kind of, again, kind of negative trope ar- around that. Does, mm-hmm. does that kind of make sense to you guys or resonate? That's that's so interesting to think about it in terms of of really power structures. Like on the one hand, you are you are the lower class and you don't have power, but on the other hand, you have made this loan and so you do have power and that is a very it's an uncomfortable place to be in society and so I could see how yeah, all kinds of stories would evolve to make make the higher class whoever that higher class is feel better about the situation. That's the way I'd normally, you know, you can, you hear the, this trope getting played out even still today. Usually it's coded with like globalists or something like there's ways of talking about it. And it's, in my experience, it's almost always people who feel like they should have made it, but they have not made it. And so they're angry at people who they perceive as, perceive as having made it and are then trying to bring them down and, or think about like ways that they made it like illegitimately. Mm -hmm. So they uh, I, I think what you're saying makes makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I mean, and it's you know, it's interesting also just looking at poverty and society, right? And so I was actually looking at some data, and Jews, you know, the, certainly the poverty exists in the Jewish community. Again, um, in in contrast to that societal trope of Jews. Jews are rich. Well, we wouldn't exist. All these interest-free loan societies around the country and around the world would not exist if all Jews were rich. So um, it's estimated that, you know, around 15 to 20 percent of Jews are living at below 150 percent of the, you know, official poverty level. So, you know, not an insubstantial portion. But the fact is, is that, you know, there's less Jews in poverty than in, in overall society. But the really the correlation there, when you look at, I was looking at some interesting data on religion and poverty, um, and really where you see the correlation is education, as we all know. Mm. So Hindus, like 50% of Hindus in the United States have uh, at least one graduate degree. And 40% of, uh, or one third of Jews and, you know, pr- uh, like 30% of Presbyterians, whatever. And when you look at the correlation between education and poverty, it's it's a totally direct correlation. Yeah. So um, that tends to be the, dr- the driver is not religion, it's education, but sometimes there is that, then that association between the religion and the, and the income level. This conversation brings me back as a Christian who, who is also a Gentile, to something we were talking about earlier, which is that in, in Deuteronomy, it's okay to take interest from a Gentile, but not from a Jew. And so it's interesting that the sort of insider-outsider dynamic that's sort of inherent in the Torah that places somebody like me inherently on the outside. And, you know, so there there is sort of in the text this, you can sort of see the seeds of this problem starting out, I think, a little bit. And to say like, okay, well, who are my people? And so to me, that just raises an interesting question about how we, all of us, think about like, who are, who are our people? One way of framing what's happening is within the Jewish community, there are people looking out for other people in their community who are in danger of falling through the cracks. And if others of us would do that as well as the Jews have tended to do that, or at least what, what Jifla is doing, thinking of people as our own and like looking out for members of our community... I wonder if we might be able to think about it a little bit that way that, you know, if, if we all had a sense of our people and we're not going to let bad things happen to our people because we feel like it's been given to us by God to look out for, for, for those among us who are most vulnerable, mm-hmm. like we could, we could kind of all lift each other up um, at, the, at the end of the day. That's yes. Nice. I love that. The one thing I, I, I think it's important to point out is that in the Torah there, most of the laws that were given about how we treat people are for all people. Because I, I honestly don't want the Christian listeners to walk away with the feeling that all these laws in the Torah say, like, only look out for yourself. Yeah. The vast majority when it comes to 
you know, even letting people glean from the fields, from the edges yeah. of the field, or when it comes to um, returning lost property, or when it comes to fairness in business, and even, you know, as specific as weights and measures. And when you measure something on a scale, again, when it comes back to when you were selling weed or other goods, you know, that was measured, treat people fairly, err on the side of giving them more. And all that relates to how you interact with society as a whole, not only with your own people. Uh, and I think that the interest, there certainly are some instances of that. And the interest free lending is one example, but it's, it's a much more limited scope, which is uh, of just how to deal with other Jews versus how to deal with society as a whole. I appreciate your saying that. I think that's exactly right. And it's explicit in this text in Exodus 22, this version of it starts out with the resident alien, the one who is not your people, but is mm-hmm. living with you. You're, right. you are directly responsible for them and they are listed first. And remember that you used to be like them. Mm-hmm. Deuteronomy's, you know, Deuteronomy sometimes has a little bit of an anxiety about outsiders, which is not shared everywhere in the Torah. And so in, in some ways I like, like I want to s- stick with this Exodus text a little bit um, <laughs> where the, it does read more inclusively to me um, in, in the way that you're talking about. Right. You're right. You're right. I have loved this conversation. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much, Laura, for spending all this time with us and talking through text and talking through what it looks like on the ground. And thank you for the work that you are doing in our community. Oh, it's exciting. Well, thank you so much. This was really fun. (laughs) So much for having me. You guys are awesome. And I love the, um, the intellect and the exploration and everything that went into this discussion was really, really fun. Thank you for including me. Laura, if there are people who are listening who are wanting to know more about what you do and, you know, like you know, find out some more information than we've been able to go in to, how would they find out about you or your organization? Sure. Thank you. So it's just J-I-F-L-A, jifla.org is the best place to go. And, and again, if you wanted to reach out to see how you could start something on your own, our, our, our staff, we've got just, you know, three part-time staff, but they're amazing and um, or some of our lay people. Um, you can even ask them to refer you to me, which is Laura Kahn. And, um, you know, we'd uh, be delighted to help folks who are thinking about uh, this kind of work. Terrific. Thank you so much for this conversation. I, I've really loved, loved every Thank minute you. of this. Wonderful. Thanks, y'all. I'll see you soon. All right. See you then, Amy. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bibleworm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Baggy. We're grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois. Join us again next week reading John chapter 4, verses 46 to 54, and chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. Until then...